C.S. Lewis once said, if we find in ourselves something that nothing in this world can satisfy, a desire that nothing else in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. There is nothing more otherworldly in the life of a Christian or a church than biblical love. It is otherworldly. And genuine love beautifully shows that your faith in Christ is real. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-12, through 12, what we will see today is, is a humble, holy life that's marked by love. And it's evidenced by a string of choices that displays the startling beauty of Christ's love that defeats disunity. As the beloved of God become more and more beloved to one another, you see that, you see that play out in more love and the glory of God. Today we will see what that means for us as a church. But we'll also see why it's the key to Christmas. Why everything we do at Christmas hinges on understanding this passage. Why Christian love in full bloom and flourishing and timely is not from us, but from God. Oftentimes, I think it's true that love is not what we really think it is. Because often, I think it is really true that God is not who we think he is. We get all sorts of ideas in our minds about what God must be like. And the Bible tells us exactly what he is like. He is love. And his love doesn't stop when it's not returned. It's otherworldly. It's different than ours. God's love is not based on merit. His covenant love is one-way love. Because love is not that you know, preset goodwill feeling you have when you're in a good mood and things are going well. It's not just basic human kindness for everyone. No, true biblical love is that, is that undiscriminating, inclusionary love that causes you to throw away your discriminating exclusionary, ever-changing list of people that you want to invite to your birthday party or send a valentine to or buy a Christmas present for. Because God's love is otherworldly. The love of God is, is utterly different. It is other, utterly other. It is incomprehensible. It is unattainable. And we would be completely clueless about what it really is like, about its true nature, were it not that God himself, who is love, made the choice to willfully love the objects of his love and make us his own. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, that's true of you. It's like you're living a, a king's life now. That's how Samuel Rutherford beautifully put it in his book the loveliness of christ he says to live on christ's love is a king's life and we don't deserve it 
And this is the love that Paul is referring to in our passage today. It is not syrupy, it is not soft, it is not sentimental. It is not some just basic human feeling or generic kindness. It is a rugged choice that rips hatred apart and destroys division and disunity and discord. It's from God. It's not from us. It's the kind of love that you recognize as otherworldly because you know it's not from you. And it didn't come just straight, straight out of your heart. You didn't manufacture it. Because it is a startling love that shocks the senses. It reorients you and it transforms you from a self-satisfied seeker of your own pleasures into a selfless lover of Jesus and a self-denier who wants to bless other people and works to bless other people. 1 Thessalonians is full of love. Now, it's not as popular as some of the other passages that get, that get name-checked for love, right? 1 Corinthians 13, or Galatians 5, or Philippians 2, or Ephesians 4. But the theme of 1 Thessalonians is the beloved of God becoming more beloved to one another as they anticipate the return of Christ. Those loved by God, those chosen by God to be saved, then love each other. Not with a love that they generated, but a love from God that he puts in our hearts for one another, for our family in Christ. Your love for each other grows. And we're going to see this again. This is the third time we're going to see it. We're going to see this word uh, do this more and more. It overflows the banks. It's been two other times in 1 Thessalonians, and it's the idea that your love for each other and all people This is an indiscriminate love. You're not just picking and choosing. I like these people, so I'll love them. I don't like these people over here, so I'm not going to show the love. No, this is where you love other people, and and it grows and overflows the banks, becomes more prominent, and it's permeating because it's from God, and it shows, and you basically just keep choosing to do what God says instead of what, what your mind's telling you all the time. And I think it's true. I, I think that sometimes, I don't know why, because, because I think most of us would be like, can't people tell that we're going through life just like everyone else? I think sometimes that people wrongly think that Christians are somehow immune to all the struggles and problems of life. And maybe we put on just too, too much of a veneer. I don't know. Like, oh, everything's okay. I don't know. But if you're a believer today, you know for a fact that you are a real person struggling in real life with real problems. And it's not the absence of trouble in your life that makes the difference. It is the presence of God. And that you have experienced, if you're a believer, a a real, life-changing, loving encounter with the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the gospel, God doesn't take away your struggles. He transforms your heart. He changes your heart. So that you love now what you used to hate. 
God. And you now hate what you used to love, your sin. This is what happened to the people in Thessalonica. This is what happens to people when they encounter Jesus Christ and they believe the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. This is what happened to you if you're saved and you're, you're a believer in Jesus. When the gospel went to Thessalonica, that was a city in need of transformation. It still is today. But back then, it was a, a, it was a real city full of real people overwhelmed by life, just like the city you live in. Thessalonica was populated with some 200,000 plus people, Romans and Greeks and Jews. It was the temporary home of sailors and travelers and immigrants. It had a vibrant economy. It had a strategic harbor. It was prime location on the Roman Empire's Ignatian Road. It was an influential first century city. And for all its perks... The people were lost, just like Orange County. And the Greeks were filling the temples. The Jews were flocking to the synagogues. And the Romans were worshiping Caesar. And there was this pervasive spiritual darkness that was just blanketing the city. As one person put it, they were tossed in a sea of religious confusion. That sounds like right now near the end of 2021 where we live. And as God does today, he did then and broke through the fog and opened the eyes of the spiritually blind. If you're not a Christian today, God can open your eyes to see the goodness of God in the gospel, the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. They turned to God from idols. That was a big break. It was a clean break. Didn't mean that they were never tempted again, but they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. We learn that in chapter 1, verse 10. We learn that about them. And what transpired, what, what emerged, what, what came out of the ashes of sin is a beloved church that was God-centered, that was word-driven, that was, that was people-sensitive, the kind of church we need to be, the kind of church that we are by the grace of God, a church filled with people changed by the gospel and, and connected in relationships and committed to serving, committed to ministry. What the Thessalonians' life, what jumps out at us is it highlighted the lordship of Christ and highlighted the the authority of, of his word and the necessity of the church. They did this together. Why we gather and we scatter and we still stay connected and encourage one another in life and in, in relationships and in service. And it didn't just happen. It didn't just spring up like a weed on the side of the road. God made it happen. 
Just like if your life is changed, it didn't just, you didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to transform my life. It didn't just happen. God caused it to happen for you in Christ if you're a believer, that God designed it this way, that there would be a consistent gathering of those who've been captured by grace and now know the love of God, the, the love of God that by his sovereign choice they were chosen. Loving then God and others because he first loved us and we believed and, and we obey and, and we want to reflect gospel truth and and here's the thing. The Thessalonians weren't the only church that was written to in the New Testament. And we know a church can be a shining beacon of, of the loved, loving. But we also know it's entirely possible for a church to be a horrid example of the loved choosing not to love of the loved being unloving. Well, the Thessalonian church loved. Genuine love beautifully shows your faith is real. That life of love that's lived in relationship with other people that's welcoming and working hard and, and being a witness for Christ. As we go through this passage, I want you to notice how beautiful this is. And, and, then, and then, once we work through these verses, we will, we will see why this is the key to Christmas. In verse 9, we see that he begins this way, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. First thing we see here is that becoming beloved, if you want to become more beloved, it involves a beautiful love that, that welcomes. We're going to see this. It welcomes others. Not just a, hey, how you doing, but welcome into my life. Just like chapter 2, verse 8, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our very lives, because you'd become very dear to us. That word very dear is beloved. It's where we get our word, the Greek word agape. It's from agape. But here in verse 9, he says, concerning brotherly love, and it's not agape, it is Philadelphia. Anyone here from, from Philadelphia? That your, your, your city is, is a Greek word. <laughs> Philadelphia, brotherly love. In classical Greek, that was a love for your family that you were born into. Love for your brothers and sisters, just in your family. In the New Testament, it's transformed into a special love that Christians have for one another because we have the same Heavenly Father. We've been born again to a living hope and we are, we're, we're in the same family by the new birth. We have the same Heavenly Father. That's brotherly love. I remember reading a Sports Illustrated article back in the 1970s when I was um, a kid and it was about the Philadelphia Flyers, the, uh, the hockey team there. And the, the article was called City of Brotherly Slug. They were fighting in all their games. They were called the Broad Street Bullies, and they literally bashed and bloodied their opponents. They did not live up to their name, Philadelphia, I'm telling you what. I got two Stanley Cups out of it, but hey. Uh, but the, the Thessalonians, they loved each other. There, there was brotherly love, and he says, you don't have anyone that needs to write to you about this. You, you're fulfilling your responsibility to foster 
close ties in the Christian community, in the family of God. You're, you're welcoming one another. Because here's what he says in verse 9. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now he didn't say Philadelphia again. He says, he uses agape. Agapao, from agape. So as to Philadelphia, brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you because you have been taught by God to agape love one another. I love it. Taught by God. Only time in the Bible you see that phrase. What does it mean? He's not referring to like, you know, God showing up in Thessalonica and saying, I'll tell you something, and then they wrote it down, and there was that one moment. This is the, the aggregate of their whole Christian experience in, in Christ where they have this relationship with God and they have the indwelling Holy Spirit in their life because at conversion, when you come to Christ, you now become a lifelong disciple of Jesus. And the Spirit of God bears witness to the love within the Christian family, the love that reflects God's love for himself in the Trinity, perfect and unified, the eternal blessedness of, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit without division. It reflects God's love for us, the sovereign, unilateral, initiated good towards his chosen ones. But it also reflects our love for God because he first loved us. We have this family devotion to a faithful creator, our savior, our sustainer. But it also reflects in our love for others, where we make a willful choice rooted in the gospel to demonstratively bless the Christians in our church. And it's not like, oh, but only the ones I like and only the ones I get along with, only the ones whose sin doesn't bug me because we're all sinners and we've all, if you're a believer, you've been forgiven by Jesus for your sins, but your sin still bumps into people. But the love here is this indiscriminate choice to bless, to do good, to deal kindly with others regardless of your perception or judgment of their worthiness. They were taught by God, the, the Spirit of God in them. Romans 5.5, 5, God sheds forth His love abroad in our hearts through the Spirit that was given to us. Only those taught by God keep on loving each other and love their neighbors and their enemies, even as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Because and in a really amazing way, in an otherworldly way, mutual love among Christians is actually ingrained into our hearts such that you would wake up on a Sunday morning and say, I can't wait to get to Grace Church of Orange and see whoever else shows up, and especially those people I've become very close to, and I'm looking forward to meeting other people too, and even people whose personality bugs me. I'm going to plan ahead to love them. I'm not going to worry about myself. I'm not going to worry about what I'm going to get. I'm not going to be a consumer. I'm actually going to show up and on purpose bless everyone I come in contact with. That's the idea of this love that Paul is talking about. This agape love for one another where there's, there's your, your beloved. Your, your beloved. And it's, it's God's covenant love that's being it's being worked out in your life. You don't generate it. Because half the time, we don't feel loving. Half the time, we don't want to go out of our way to love someone else. Half the time, we want to nurse our hurts. 
But here, this agape, when it's used of people, it literally means to welcome them into your life, to entertain them in your life, meaning that you're, you're fond of them, you love them dearly, and, and there's, there's no choosiness about it. Whoever's in your church, you've been taught by God to love. By the word of God, the spirit of God, we gave the word of God. You're to love your fellow believers, and, and you can because God first loved you, and you can because you actually have a love for them because it comes from God, not you. God's covenant love, it, it's unilateral. In the Hebrew, it is hased. In the Greek, it is agape. Old Testament hased and New Testament agape run parallel to each other. They're the deepest forms of love. They're not contingent on anything in you. They love to love. They're unchanged by, unchanged by your failure in life. They're unchanged by your, your, your puny affections for God or others. Agape wasn't even used much in classical Greek literature before the New Testament. God grabbed that word and he infused it with his grace. It is a sacrificial love that gives even to death. Because of God's covenant love, Jesus died at the cross. Because of hased and agape, marriages can survive the breaking of a covenant. Friendships can be brought back together as people forgive without limit. As one commentator put it, this is a love that is given quite irrespective of merit. It is a love that seeks to give. It is otherworldly. It is not from you and me. It is from God. Those, those born of God, whose hearts are filled by the Spirit of God, cannot help loving because they know Christ's forgiveness. When, when you know Christ's forgiveness and you know your unworthiness, you love. The only people who can't get there are the ones who don't know Christ's forgiveness. In fact, he says in verse 10, you're doing this, not just with one another, but to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. You, you didn't just get taught the lesson and go, yeah, I'll practice that maybe on Wednesday, but you actually practice it every day, and he's saying, way to go. You've got a pervasive love that is spreading out from your church and blessing other Christians too. It's contagious. If they were to do contact tracing back then throughout Macedonia, it would reveal that the Thessalonians showed the love of Christ to everyone they came in contact with. And they weren't perfect people. But the love that they had permeated and emanated from them, and it was a sweet aroma. He says in verse 10, I urge you, this is very interesting, you're doing so great now, don't stop. Don't let up. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't say, hey, we're so loving, because the next thing you know, you might be hateful. Being the model that they were. The goal was not, okay, we're going to give you a trophy. But don't trip up. Keep going. Good job, don't let up. Good job, don't get complacent. Good job, keep pressing on. 
more love. We urge you, do this more and more. There's the word again. Let it overflow the banks. Be a blessing. More love. You know, it's always possible for Christians because the ultimate example is Jesus. Now, Jesus, his love is infinite and unending. But we can only reflect it. We cannot fully reach it. That's why Hebrews 13.1 says, Let brotherly love continue. 1 Peter 1 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from your heart. Peter says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with brotherly affection and love. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Perfect God, loving, imperfect sinners. Now, we are imperfect sinners that are loving, imperfect sinners because we love the perfect God. And his love is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given us. 1 John 4 tells us, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the mercy sacrifice for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We can do it now. We couldn't before. John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, you should love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. That is also known as the 11th commandment in some circles. A new commandment I give you. Beloved church, with a relational connection that drives ministry commitment, where you say, I want to gladly spend and be spent for the souls of others, not for me. I'm going to share the word of God in my life because the people are very dear to me. They're beloved because I'm beloved by God because of his perfect sovereign choice. And now I can love my brothers and sisters in Christ, by God's enabling and as I choose it on the daily. You can make those otherworldly, counterintuitive choices when you have the Holy Spirit living in your life. Become more beloved in the body of Christ. There's always room to grow. You need to love Christ. Linger in His presence. Love the gospel. Love Jesus. And love Christ's church. Love gospel-changed people. Long to be with them. Lean on your trusted friends. Look beyond your differences. And love the lost. It gives assurance. Doing what God wants indicates being born again by God's Spirit and We know we can't please God apart from faith, and so as we walk by faith, we love, and it's this beautiful welcome, and you become more beloved, a beautiful welcome you give to others to come into your life. The second idea here is that there's also a beautiful work involved, and you can't get more practical than what he says next, to the point where some are like, wait, that doesn't even fit with what he just says. Well, it's right in the tight context. It is absolutely flowing out of what he just said. What is it? Verse 11, aspire. It means 
be, be so zealous about it and strive so eagerly for it, this is your ambition, of strive to live quietly. That doesn't mean you walk around, you know, not saying a word. Live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your hands. All you crafters are like, ha ha, I'm doing so awesome. I'm a crafter. I work with my hands or, you know, whatever. If you do the kind of work where you work with your hands, you're like, yeah, that's me. So let's see what it means. Because some people say, well, it doesn't fit with what was just said. Here's the connection. If you're unwilling to take responsibility for these things, you're going to disrupt unity in Christian community. Aspire to this. Make it your ambition. Be zealous. Strive eagerly. Don't disturb the tranquility of peace of, in the body of Christ, the, the, the love that permeates true Christian community. Don't take advantage of the generosity of fellow believers. Don't take financial help with no, with no effort. He says, live a quiet life. That means to be at rest internally, be at rest. To, to be quiet, but not literally, and to remain silent, but not literally. The context is this. He's speaking to those whose brotherly love, and probably well-meaning, but they got off point, expressed itself in out-of-bounds busybodying. We don't use that term very often, but busybodying. And what he's saying is just behave and do your own work. Live a quiet life. Don't make problems. Don't generate conflict. Just rest in Christ in the midst of difficulties. Do what you're called to do. Mind your own business. Don't meddle. And he says, work with your hands. It implies that idleness was a problem for some among the Thessalonians. And by the way, he says, work with your hands. The Greeks despised manual labor. They said, that's the work of slaves. They degraded manual labor. Here, Christianity and Judaism viewed work as honorable. Most earned their living with their hands back then. But this is not talking about manual labor, like you're better if you work with your hands and you're, you know, if, if you do other kind of work, you're not as good. That's not what this is talking about. This is not manual labor as opposed to other kinds of work. This is working versus being idle. This is, hey, you continue supporting yourself and avoid idleness. And he says in verse 11, we instructed you about this. We told you about this. That literally means we charged you. We commanded you. We ordered you to do it. This is used of orders from a, of a military commander. It reflects the, the authority of the, the living God in his word. Later on, you know what happens? In 2 Thessalonians, he has to correct those who didn't mind their own business, who didn't work hard. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, we command you, here's a strong word again, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accordance with the tradition you receive from us. He says, even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Meaning the common shared meal, the love feast, they would be excluded. He says, we, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. What he's saying is, do you want to see the beauty of God's love through your life and in the church? Do the simple things that God has called you to do on a daily basis. Do the humble things that God is calling you to do and given you to do and gifted you to do. We all know that many of us 
might get caught up in working for things that will not satisfy us. Abby Reimer just recently wrote this, material beauty will never be enough. The best of earth will never meet the deepest longing of our brokenness. We long like pining Bethlehem for our mighty God to do great things for us, and he has. But people will do crazy things for fame and fortune. There are attention grabbers everywhere, and we, we often will seek fulfillment in fleeting pleasures. But we find we just fall into all sorts of bad traps when we don't delight in Christ. And our priorities show it. I mean, you can just look at your life. Look at your private life. Look at your bank statement. Look at the banking app. Look at your screen time. Look at your browsing history. Look at your credit card statement. Look at your possessions. Look at what's in your garage. Look at your closets. Look at your online presence. Look at your social or political crusade. Look at your latest boycott. They can all be indicators. They can all be indicators of being a busybody or being meddling in other people's lives. And what we need to grasp is we shouldn't be burning our energy on needless things or, or leapfrogging our primary responsibilities in life. If you want to become beloved in the body of Christ, it involves this beautiful, loving welcome that you give to other believers, but also doing the beautiful work that God has given you to do. And what you'll notice is in verse 12, it, it eventuates, it, it, it shows up, it equals... A, a beautiful witness. Look at verse 12. It says, so that. This is the reason. This is the reason that you may walk or, or live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That you would walk properly. The idea is that you've you're, you're got an eye to your life. You kind of understand what you're doing and you're self-aware and you're sensitive to others and you're aware of the example that you are setting you're aware of your witness to unbelievers. Anyone and everyone that's not within the Christian community, that's that term, it's a common New Testament term, the outsider. It means someone, we don't, we're not supposed to treat them badly, but it's, they are not in the family of God. And it says, behave properly towards them. For your life to, to win the respect of unbelievers, you have to eliminate meddlesomeness and busybodiness and idleness. Because those who have no connection to Christ, they recognize contagious Christian conduct and they recognize bad behavior. Unbelievers are sometimes repelled by those who don't show the love by taking care of their own responsibilities. So it's related to a good testimony. And you notice it says, don't be dependent on anyone. That's interesting. What he's saying is this. Don't be a freeloader who doesn't work and leeches off other people. Uh, he's not saying be totally independent. You can't live off the, off the Christian grid away from all, these other, all the believers you don't like. It's not biblical. It's not possible. It's not possible to be a growing, healthy Christian apart from being a part of a community of Christians in a local church. You want to have a good testimony? You want to have godly responsibility? People need to see you... Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Wait for his son from heaven who saves us from the wrath to come. And when you do that, you're not making the gospel true. It's true anyway. It's true whether you are in good behavior or, or bad behavior. It's true whether we're model citizens or, or not. It, the, the gospel is unchanging. It's unwavering. 
Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead, is coming back. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Truth that transforms. What we are to do is adorn the gospel. Titus 2.10 says, adorn the gospel. What does that mean? It means display it. Put it on in your life. It comes from a word that means arrange or put something in order. It's used of ornaments. In Christmas season, this is a good word for us to use, adorn the gospel. It's the ornaments they would put on tombs back then or on buildings or, on, or even on people. Think about decorations. Think about how, how hard everybody sometimes decorates. Maybe some of you are like, I got to decorate for every holiday, even the, the fake ones, you know. Because um, I just have to decorate. Well, wonderful. Do whatever you want. But, but first, have this on your mind that you want to please God by decorating your life with love and good deeds that reflect the gospel truth. That there's good works and holy life glorifying God. Because as you proclaim the gospel, your life needs to display it. Like, what do your neighbors see and hear? I'm serious. They hear you. They see you. Francis Schaeffer, in his little book, The Mark of a Christian, wrote it back in the 1970s. He said this, it's a lack of love. The things that are said by true Christians in the midst of differences that stick in the mind like glue. Unloving attitudes and words cause a stench that the world can smell in the church of Jesus Christ. Please do not think it is hidden. What we really want are beautiful outcomes, right? We want beautiful outcomes. We want the counterintuitive distinctives, the otherworldly. We want that. That loving welcome based on God's sovereign choosing, driving our sacrificial choosing love. The, you know what brings you there? The new birth. The new birth. Brings you into beautiful fellowship with God. George Whitfield was a guy at age 16, just was deeply committed, convicted of his sins, and he tried everything to uh, shake the guilt. And I'm talking like everything. Fasting 36 hours twice a week, praying all these formal prayers, several times a day, almost starving himself to death at one point, and he only felt more miserable. Then Charles, he met Charles Wesley, and he told him, you, can, you had to be born again, or else you can be totally lost eternally. He, was, he believed the gospel, was saved, and then he became a preacher. As a preacher, he preached over a thousand times on, you must be born again. In fact, in 1752, he writes a letter to Benjamin Franklin. He was worried about his soul. And he says, I find you growing more and more famous in the world of letters. I commend to your unprejudiced study the mystery of the new birth, the most important study. And he says, dear friend, remember that he before whose bar we must both soon appear has solemnly declared, without the new birth, you will not see the kingdom of God. Oh, you have to be born again to even know Christ. And you have to be born again to show the love of Christ. The new birth brings you into beautiful fellowship with God and it drives our brotherly and sisterly love. You want to become more beloved to those in this church? I've, I've already said it, but try, try being kind to everyone you come in contact with. Everyone. Especially the ones you're having problems with. 
and seek to bless them. That's it. You don't have to worry about what you're going to get out of it. Just plan to be kind to everyone and bless them in some way. The consumer mindset of going to church to get something is counterintuitive to the biblical pattern that Jesus gave, and it's recorded in Acts 20, verse 35. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's what the Bible lays down for us. You want to do this, you need to engage in loving work. You receive and accept the word of God, and it does its work in you who believe, and you just do what what you are called to do in life, as long as it's not against the law. Unless preaching becomes against the law or any good thing that God commands becomes against the law, you keep doing what God has called you to do. And you need to take relational responsibility. As a church, we focused this fall on the beloved in Christ becoming more beloved, and I have been brought to tears and greatly encouraged by hearing the story again and again and again, stories of people who said, I had a problem with somebody, I heard what the word said to me, I need to take care of it, and God, praise God, Uh, he brought us peace. We went and dealt with it over and over again. People of all ages doing what God says to do. It's proof of the Spirit at work in you. Or the alternative is allow disunity due to pride. What you need to do is put value on spiritual relationships. Intentionally. Love for other Christians. Demonstrates the power of the gospel to the world shows us to be real Christians. Love is how you live out the fruit of the Spirit. In, in two ways, I, I, I want to say. Discipling relationships, where you do someone's spiritual good, and hospitality, which literally means love for strangers, where you just find any way possible to bless people. And you have to really plan that into your personal time, I think. With coffee or breakfast or lunch or just visiting people. Discipling and hospitality are the two primary ways you get connected at Grace Church. Just grassroots. And you want to be a loving witness where the love overflows all expectations and the world says, wow, huh, that's otherworldly. Prompts them to say, not that we're great, but God is great. God is working in his people to will and do his good pleasure permeating aroma of goodness. You know when someone wears too much cologne or perfume, you smell them before they come into the room? We're not talking about that. We're talking about a beautiful aroma that God brings about, 2 Corinthians 2 kind of aroma. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. This is what the Thessalonians did, and this is what everyone at Grace Church of Orange should have as their ambition. To live a humble life, welcoming fellow believers and working whatever work God has given us to do and be a good witness. That's the outflow. The good witness is the outflow of doing the first two. That's what it means to be in this church. But why is it the key to Christmas? Why does it apply right now to the season we're in? It's because every actor in the Christmas narratives was just doing what they were supposed to do. They were minding their own business. They were doing God's call on their life. And they were giving witness in word and deed to the glory of God. I mean, start with Elizabeth. Here she is expressing no 
overreaching desire to birth a wilderness-dwelling itinerant evangelist. You don't see Mary putting out a want ad, I really would like to be the mother of any up-and-coming messiahs. You got Joseph, who is not a power grabber. He's a lover of his betrothed. You got shepherds just watching their flocks at night. As far as we know, they weren't pining for better jobs. Simeon, waiting for the consolation of Israel. This man, this old man that God had promised, says, your bucket list includes seeing the Messiah before you die. You've got Anna, who's humbly serving God in the temple. You've got Magi acknowledging the king greater than they and seeking the glory of the Holy One. You've, you've just got people doing ordinary things that God uses in extraordinary ways. They're sacrificially serving Jesus. The love that every actor in the Christmas narrative displays. Except for one. Except for one. Herod. Remember when he said to the Magi, uh, where is he that I may worship him too? No, the, the slaughter of the innocents came from that. Herod was evil. This is this mean-spirited, satanically driven monster of Christmas. And what it proves to us is the Christmas story did not start on a starry night in Bethlehem. The Christmas story started in the Garden of Eden, not the Gospel of Matthew. A Savior, a Deliverer, was promised to rescue us due to sinful disobedience that stained creation and just shattered our relationship to God. And so in Genesis 3.15, God promised. And he said to the serpent in Genesis 3.14, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 15, he shall bruise your head. He, you, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. This is telling us that Jesus would crush Satan. So Christmas became a, a thing a long time before Bethlehem and the eternal sovereign decrees of God and the secret counsel of the Trinity. God planned to redeem the world from sin. But a long and bloody battle would result. A clash of kingdoms, if you will. Adam and Eve rejecting God's rule. Cain soon after killing Abel, and it went downhill from there. Ever since the garden, the promised deliverer coming to save. Throughout the history of Israel, their unfaithfulness to God, God kept his covenant promises secure. And when the time was pregnant, God sent forth his son, Galatians 4.4, to earth to become a baby and to grow into a man to die for our sins on our place in our place at the cross, on the cross, the substitution, fulfilling his plan, showing his glory, the glory that he had forever, glory displayed in creation and through the ages and at the birth of Christ and in his death and resurrection and in saving lost sinners from eternal wrath and doom. This is the, is the info you and I need right now. Jesus saves lost sinners from wrath and doom. What about Christmas. Jesus was born in the days of Herod. Worst possible time in history for the new king of Israel to be born under a paranoid king. God's glory returned as man's depravity increased. But just don't ignore hateful Herod 
in the Christmas story. He's lurking in the shadows, the underbelly of humanity, and the reason why Christ came. Lord, we thank you that there is a supernatural love within your family is empowered not by our lovability or our goodness, but by your supernatural forgiveness in Christ at the cross. Lord, we understand our sin. We understand our undeserved forgiveness that comes from you. And thank you, Lord, that because of that, because of that forgiveness, you create a love for you that creates love for others, and we don't love in our own strength. We just... We just follow you in your strength and for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for the startling beauty that defeats disunity, that truly brings us into, into the places you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, that you are working in us more and more, little by little. You're directing our hearts into your love and the steadfastness of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your otherworldly love. We pray in Christ's name.